0: has remained standing for the reading of God's word taken from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. You could just look up there, but I was just like, trying to run it off the top of my head, so let's go for that. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his word. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true. You keep the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, well, aware of their malice, said, why put me through the test, you hypocrite? Show me the coins, coin for the tax, and they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, "Whose likeness and in inscription is that?" They said, Caesar. Then he said to them, "Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." When they heard it, they marvelled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are continuing week two of politics. I did probably consider for a second, maybe I should stop this after I received a few text messages that were not very kind. To In response to that, I will say this. If you believe you know who I voted for, you are assuming too much. You cannot pigeonhole me based on what I said. And so you can make assumptions, but they're just that, assumptions. And so we continue into politics. Why? Because the rest of the world will be talking about politics. And you listen to the radio, you watch the news, and you scroll through your Twitter feed many, many times. And so, I'll begin with this. In, 19, in 1884, Edwin Abbott published the fable, Flatland. Flatland is an imaginary country where everyone lives in two dimensions. People only appear as squares, triangles, or circles. And one day, a new thing, a sphere, comes along. And he looks a little weird, and they can't tell what he's talking about. He keeps trying to tell them that he comes from the three-dimensional world and that they're living in two dimensions. Of course, they can't believe him because of their limited view, which obscures their vision of reality. No matter what he tries to convince them that he's a sphere, they don't have the faculties which allow them to believe him. They can't conceive of a three-dimensional world because they've only experienced the limit of two dimensions. So, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, the week of his passage, people can only conceive conceive of a limited two-dimensional vision. And the problem that many of us have today is when Jesus starts talking about anything remotely like politics or kingdom, it throws us for a loop. Why? Because we have con- been conditioned to see things only in two dimensions. And when Jesus starts talking about th- the 3 D world, we are confused. We're like, Bro, what's up? And so, Jesus will not be stuck into our two-dimensional world. He just can't try to do that to him. Unlimited vision today will have us living like the kingdom of God can be reduced to a political platform now. We may not confess that we're confusing the kingdom of God with our political allegiances, But when we are willing to condemn someone because of who they vote for, then we are betraying the priority of spiritual reality, our union with God, and union with His body for a political body. We have our priorities, our values mixed up. We're prioritizing the worldly over the priority of God's kingdom. Let me explain it this way. And I have explain it uh, different ways before. I would say the generations, generally, this is generally speaking, the generations of baby boomers and the Gen X approach politics much like they approach a casserole, okay. And so it is all there in an amalgamation, okay. Imagine uh, hash brown casserole and its cheesy goodness, but there's little onions in there. And the truth is that many people would say that in this generation, that's just the way it is. You take the casserole or you leave it. Okay? Either you enjoy this casserole dish with the onions in it, or that's it. And that's the way we approach politics in that generation. They would say it's like a casserole. There are things that you're not going to like, but it is much better than that casserole over there. Okay? Now, there are people like us who are millennials and also Gen Z or the I generation who was born with a telephone in their hands. And so, they approach politics, we approach politics, much like a taco, okay? A taco is fully customizable. Think about it, okay? Corn tortilla, carnitas, sprinkled with a little bit of lime, chipotle cream sauce a little bit of cilantro, okay? And I want it then served on a beautiful stainless steel little V so I can put my taco in there and it will not spill over and get on those really weird pickled radishes, okay? I don't want that on my taco. But my taco is the greatest, the best. And what we do then is we universalize our taco experience as being the greatest and then we make it so that everybody must believe that my taco is the best. And if they don't, then they are wrong and they are going to hell. That's the way we approach our politics at times. Millennials, Gen Z, we have a customizable approach to it, whereas Our older generations or more mature generations approach it as a casserole. But the kingdom of God is not like the casserole or the taco version. Both of these are two-dimensional when they universalize it and say, this is the way it must go. See, our two-party system is two-dimensional. If you're able to find and able to conceive of a Christian voting, if you're, you know, you say... You know, you can't be a Christian if you vote for person X. And you're ready to condemn them. Then you're beholden not to a Christian worldview, but to a worldly system. And you have a limited imagination. I call this litmus testing. Litmus testing happens whenever anyone uh, comes to you and they are questioning your orthodoxy or you question someone's orthodoxy, their faith based on something other than the confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Instead, we might judge someone's confession based on who they vote for. You voted for that, huh? Well, obviously, you believe in a whole constellation of other things that are not orthodox. Oh, you go to that church. You're involved with that denomination. Obviously, you believe X, Y, and Z listen to that music? I mean, I know a thing or two about that music. You could possibly be a Christian if you listen to that music. And what you have done is you have made a test in order to determine whether or not they are in or they are out. Luckily, Jesus doesn't give us that test. Rather, he looked at us and says, y'all failed, I will save you. And we place our faith in him. That is very helpful to us. And Jesus ran into this type of litmus testing, too. When it came to the city of Jerusalem, the people bowed down, declaring him to be the true divided king. He said, all right, finally, there's someone who's going to be on our side. God has come, and we are about to kick out these dirty Roman pagans." But that's not what happened. He put himself in conflict with the temple authorities by clearing the temple. And the church is a fig tree, an image of the priestly authority. One question about his authority, he tells them parables about the kingdom, warning those who have misused their position or have been in authority, and they are so practically looking down on others, believing that God owes them, and that when he visits Jerusalem, he should have saved them because they have absolutely passed. He tells them, though, to be prepared to see the marginalized sinners be welcomed into the kingdom before them. So he turns the world upside down. So when we come to our text, where Pharisees and Herodians come together to find out about the politics of Jesus, they are litmus-testing him. They want to trap him in order to get rid of him. They try to see, get, catch Jesus by asking them about his politics. Herodians, they are the powerful party. They are in cahoots with the Romans. The Pharisees, they are populists. They have control of the synagogues. and A lot of people are following them. These two are not buddy groups. But they see Jesus, and he is so weird with his 3D business that their 2D minds can't conceive of it. And they're like, yo, what do you think about Jesus? And they're like, oh, we got to get rid of this guy. So what do they do? They get together, and they're like, we're going to trap him. We're going to get him. If he says, yes, is it lawful to pay taxes? Then we know that he's not powerful, he's not with the populace, and he'll lose all clout. But if he says no, that it is not lawful, then the Herodians can take him and crucify him. Why? Why? Because he is saying that the Roman authorities have no authority, that he's really a revolutionary. He's a he's a decent. In this particular question. Is because the, the tax is, is thought to surround the taxes levied at the temple. The Jesus' kingdom, when pressed and put to the test, is answering questions their litmus test is not ask. Jesus' kingdom cannot be reduced to such limited or worldly secular thinking. They wanted the litmus test there. To the same should be said of God's people. People should know that, no, that, people should not know what to make of our, uh, make of us politically. Christians should not find a home easily in either party. Socially, we should be radical in our love and care for those made in the image of God in and out of the world. We should champion freedom from government intrusion, all the while giving ourselves to our neighbors and public service. We should be or economics that are fair for owner and worker alike. People should not be able to assume that they can fit a Christian to one political party or the other. If your Jesus would be comfortable at the DNC or the RNC, then you're worshiping a god of your imagination. You're violating the second commandment. You're not worshiping the god of the Bible. If your confession is that Jesus is Lord, it means that Caesar is not. If Jesus is more than the Democratic Party nominee is not. If Jesus is more than the Republican Party nominee is not. If Jesus is Lord, then our standing in the world is not based on who we vote for. If Jesus is Lord, then what happens on November third is not ultimate, and shouldn't cause us to fear, and walk in trepidation, nor will it cause us to fly and gloat over others. If Jesus is Lord, then judging the orthodoxy of your brothers and sisters because they didn't vote like you is hinting at potential idolatry in your life, and you have made something into the image of God which you are worshiping. And you need to take a look around. Scott Falls says, we could feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. If this is not our experience, then we very may well be rendering to Caesar what belongs to God. If you have more in common with your political leader than Jesus, you might have a political idol. If you were inconsolably let down in 2016 and abandoned your church, you might have an idol. If you're willing to call the other side names and demonize them, Marxist, fascist, or whatever comes to mind, you might have an idol. If you question the orthodoxy of your brothers and sisters because of how you assume they voted, then you might have a political idol. If you blindly believe that this election will solve all of our problems and that the earth will prompt of who we voted for, and unless it is the president of our tiny little country in the history of the world, then we might have a political idol. The kingdom of God does not fit neatly into any political party. Why? Because the kingdom of God can't be reduced to secular politics. It is otherworldly and not thisworldly. It can't fit into these political systems, and therefore it will have something to affirm and something to critique about each political party. First, what does it have to affirm? When Jesus tells them to render unto Caesar, he legitimizes the Roman right to levy taxes. He's at the same time affirming that secular governments aren't inherently evil, just because they exist, and because they're of this world doesn't mean that they are evil. God creates the world, God allows systems to happen, and he doesn't say, ah, just because you exist, you're evil. No. Governments are a legitimate entity for the sake of the common good. Jesus here distinguishes between the sacred kingdom of God and the secular without separating the two or opposing them. So, as God's people we live as dual citizens in the city of God and in the city of man at the same time. In John nineteen eleven, Jesus tells Pontius Pilate that he would have no authority unless it was given to him. In Romans thirteen, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by guess who? God. State entities are to keep justice. Restrain evil according to natural law. In 1 Peter 2, Peter instructs an oppressed people who are actually being hunted down by the civil government, who are being hated on, and not just on Twitter, but out in the marketplaces and in their of worship, and he says this to them, he says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, an emperor who wants to kill them and blame everything on them, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put the silence to injure the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And then here's the thing here. Honor the emperor. Excuse me? It's like the rebel saying, like, ah, Darth Vader. Yeah, he ain't that bad. What? That makes no sense. Why? Because here what it is saying that the institutionalized governments aren't necessarily always against God's people and God's ways of doing things. They will be judged according to their means and their methods, but it is instituted by God. So this leads us to understand that each political party because hopefully hopefully each political party is trying to think about what is becoming good. That there is something to affirm before we can critique it. We can't just write them off. Each of these institutions, these political parties, will be judged. They will be judged about how it treats people and how it uses power. They'll be they'll be judged based on their methods and their means by which they govern, and they will be judged for it. So when we affirm each political party, we we one of the things that we will end up doing is looking at the party platforms. we like, how Democrat, Republican, and we'll look at it. So one of the things that you and I do because you and I come from different backgrounds, from different places, what might happen is that we will prioritize certain agenda items more than others. Agenda items such as economy, prison reform. Immigration, abortion, defense spending, free trade, and a myriad of other, ID, uh, other other things. And the weight that we give to each one will be different. And because we give weight to each one differently, do you know what might actually happen? We might see that the other side's political platform is rubbish and that our side looks really good. And do you know what might happen? Someone in this room might disagree with you because they weigh things differently than you do. You see, if you only highlight the positives about your candidate and only show the flaws of your opponent, you haven't done your homework. you are perfectly hiding the truth. Jesus finds that even the oppressive, occupying power of Rome has some legitimacy and can be affirmed. If states exists for the common good, then Christians can be co-conspirators in bringing about the good of people, especially their neighbors, regardless of the political party. The church is a manifestation of the kingdom of God, yes. And it doesn't stand in opposition necessarily to the state, but it is a bit paradoxical. Why? Because it's not of this world. The church as an institution exists to make disciples of Jesus. It does that by meeting for worship, preaching the word, singing songs, taking the sacrament, which is God's, made, made, God's word made visible. Then the church organized is sent out as a church scattered and the church organic to live in the world for its good. So, in some sense, the church stands above this world, approving of some things and disapproving of others. The church is also against some of the things in this world, especially means and methods that are immoral. And so we work in a countercultural way into this world. The church is also paradoxical, being in the world but not of it, it's of a different quality as different means and different methods. But the church also transforms the political ways of the state, bringing to bear the new creation into the world. So what does this mean? Maybe you could sit down and look at the party platform of those who you will vote against, and maybe you'll find some affinity with them today. you will say, well, maybe they've got something here. And we can ask ourselves then also how the churches be part of working together with those on the other side of the aisle to bring about the common good. One of the things that we need to do in the next few weeks is spend more time in God's Word and being formed and disciples by God's Word than we are by Fox News, by CNN, by OAN or the Huffington Post. You see, what will happen in the next few weeks is that we will uh, affirm our side so much and demonize the other side that we create a litmus test and then condemn even our brothers and sisters. Instead of realizing that the church exists, for the sake of the world, so that it would be transformed and they would reflect his goodness into it. But it also does this, the church and God's people, God's kingdom, does this by critiquing. And it will critique either party as well. Jesus, after affirming the legitimacy of the Roman state, then critiques it in an unusual way. He says, Render unto God what belongs to God, which is mainly everything. Although he makes a distinction between state and kingdom, he doesn't separate them. On their coin, which would, would have been given to Jesus, would have had the image of Tiberius on one side, and on the other side, the inscription saying, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus Caesar. One of my kids has one of these. Little, funny coins. Really interesting. The means and methods of the Roman Empire was one of power. And yet, this is the thing that God's kingdom will critique. God's kingdom isn't one about a gaining power. It isn't about abusing power. It isn't about using power, but giving away power. The value and means of the kingdom of God are laid out later in the chapter when he's count cha- when he's by an expert of the law. So the Pharisees are like, "Okay, he didn't give us the answer that we wanted." He marveled us and he stuck us right between the eyes, and somehow we weren't able to wrangle him and get him to say what we wanted. He didn't pass our litmus test, nor did he fail it. He decided to crumple up our litmus test and answer questions we weren't even asking. And so there's something up with this guy. So they send a lawyer to him. And this lawyer, he's got it together. He's got threats over there and says, says yo. Uh, what's the uh, greatest commandment, smarty pants? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. The thing is like it, You shall love your neighbor of your eyes yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Meaning Jesus is the ultimate allegiance demanded of you. Demonstrated by love and care for your neighbor, even so that your public, en- your political enemy, the person that you may face, is that is one you are to care for and love. Here's the deal: Jesus shows up, he gives this answer, and the Lord's like, "All right, homeboy, just did something weird to my litmus test. He just summed up the entirety of the Old Testament in two verses. Um, that's really weird." So Jesus now comes and critiques the state by saying with this little sentence that they are running out of time. The Roman state is temporary. This time period where we vote for Republican or Democrat or we hate each other, guess what, guys? At some point in time, it's going to disappear. American history is a little tiny blip and dot on the timeline of the world. He's saying that the power of every state is not ultimate. He's saying that his kingdom is ultimate. Paul will state it in the book of Philippians this way: Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is a direct affront to what would have been on the point. A direct affront. Because the Roman belief was that Caesar was Lord. But here, Jesus is saying, uh-uh. I'm Lord. And so you render unto God what is God which is everything. And so it means that the means and the methods matter of the kingdom. And our political means and methods nowadays can be summed up in a succession of songs. The means and methods nowadays, some of it could be down to money. Whoever pays more or funds more, they could be in power. They're the ones who earn our vote. So it's like Wu-Tang Clan's queen. Tax rules everything around me get the money. Follow dollar bills, y'all. And that's the way we form our political alliances. What could be best for my pocketbook? The other means and methods to be public enemy, where they talk about power. The public enemy tells us that we've got to fight the power. And so we want to get into positions and have authority in order to fight back. Another one could be fame or reputation, for which Peter Gabriel will say that success is the best revenge. If you've got fame, it'll be revenge on everybody else who's against you. But all these means and methods are worldly. And God in his kingdom is otherworldly, completely different from what you and I know. It's loving God and loving neighbor means power for living and not just getting ahead in the world, but the power to love and sacrifice for others. So there's two major missteps that we have when it comes to politics and the church. One, is always condemning the state, saying that the state is always wrong. The state is always bad, and we live in sickness of the state at all times. And the other is probably the most frequent one, and that is confusing the kingdom with the state. Looking for politics to bring about the kingdom. Adopting the means and methods of the world to bring about or protect the kingdom. The church is spiritual and moral. It is for God's good and glory. It is about making disciples who make a difference in the world. It is about a new creation through service and sacrifice. The state is civil and legislative about maintaining order in the common good. So a great example of this confusion of the state and the kingdom is this. When they come to take Jesus away, here It's all about power. Holds out the fork, cuts off a guard's ear. And Jesus is like, yo, what's up? I mean, do we need to go back to day one uh this is not the way my kingdom happens. This is not the way you protect God's kingdom. Or maybe it's like Judas who uses money. Judas wants his kingdom come, and so he gets some shekels in his pocketbook, and he sells Jesus over. Or maybe it's Pontius Pilate who wants to, uh, continue to have his fame and reputation, and so what does he do? He turns over Jesus. You see, here's the problem. When we confuse the state with with God's kingdom, we will look to politics to protect or to build the kingdom. You see, there is only one protector and rescuer of the Christian church, and that is Jesus Christ. And And he does not do that by taking power. He does it by giving power away. So this is what you need to know. No donkey nor elephant saves the church. Only the lamb who was slain and sits on the throne is the savior of God's elect. And he does it not by slaying his enemies, but by serving and sacrificing for his people. The power of the kingdom comes from serving and sacrifice. And we hear it through his word and his gospel we eat it, and we sing of it. The kingdom of God doesn't fit me in either party. Why? Because it's not a human party. Jesus said the cross is being handed over by the means and methods of modern politics. For money, he's handed over to the powers and loses all fame By undergoing all this, is he is becoming a servant, dying for his people, establishing a strange kingdom that comes through sacrifice. The loss of power, not by attaining power. Each of you, let each of you, as Paul says, look not only to his own interests but the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus too, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, or even death on the cross. Therefore God entirely exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every son confess that Jesus is Lord to so the glory of God the Father. In political season what we need to remember is no one party is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. And we can't condemn our brothers and sisters who vote differently from us. Because we together belong to a, a kingdom that has priority over political kingdoms because political kingdoms will all be temporary and will all fade away when every knee bows at the knee of Jesus, who earns this, not by power and might, but through service and sacrifice for you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, please meet with us now as we partake of these elements so that you would be honored And you would be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.